Get off my world. Get off my world. Get off my world. Listeners, and welcome back to episode 44 of Get Off My World, a podcast about the classic Doctor Who series in which we occasionally deign to refer to the current series as well. I'm Pat. I'm Joshua. And I'm Kelvin. And we're going to take you through five rounds rapid and get to what's great and not so great about our favorite show. So, as always... Uh, our first round is something we like to call temporal grace, and this is uh, where the three of us say something nice and gentle about Doctor Who or the Doctor Who universe. Josh, would you like to start? Yes. When we're recording this, the newest Series 10 trailer has just hit the internet, and I have to say I am stupidly excited for this, for Capaldi's, well, for any Capaldi. I'm sad that it's his last season, but knowing this is our last hurrah with uh, the 12th Doctor is exciting. But the series looks really good, and I know trailers can lie, but there's so much to like in this trailer. The Ice Warriors are back, 10th Planet Cybermen. Bill looks just like a solid, great companion. There is a shot of the old-school sonic screwdriver in there of the Doctor. It looks like the Doctor tossing it over to Nordahl. I'm hesitantly super excited. <laughs> I have this. Optimist. I have this fear, though, that it's going to be the series we wanted for Series 8. They even recently changed the title of the first episode from She Has a Star in Her Eye or something along those lines. That's not exactly right. To The Pilot, which is the typical sort of Moffat play on words. But uh, Moffat has said, as so is Capaldi, that it's this really fresh start. Hmm. I mean, I say I'm dreading that just because it would be disappointing to have his last season be this fresh start that we wanted <laughs> Series 8. But if it's a great, strong season, I'll be excited. But also apparently a start that's referring to lots of the history of the show. If we have <laughs> the Mondasian Cybermen yes. are back from the first Doctor era. Yeah. So who Yeah, I, I, I'm wondering if that's a hint at bringing back Susan somehow. I'd love to see that. Just other first Doctor era stuff. Well, I mean, that's one of the things that Moffat hasn't touched yet. We know that he he's not shy about doing serious touching up of continuity. Mm-hmm. He added in an entire John Hurt. <laughs> so Let's I just fold that in. Yeah. There. Yeah. <laughs> Insert John Hurt here. I would I would happily see what he would do to Susan or the idea of Susan. Yeah. What about you, Calvin? I actually wrote this down because I wanted to make sure I didn't screw it up. Is there authentic? Paper unfolding sense. <laughs> That's some serious foley. Yeah, this is my, my very, very old beat-up piece of uh, notebook paper. Huh? But apparently, there is some sort of uh, British Kickstarter. I don't know if it's Kickstarter or Patreon or what, but it's it's through this guy's website. That someone is going to write a play for the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And if uh, it's funded, it will star uh, some guy named Richard Oliver... Robert Picardo, who played the Doctor on Voyager. Do- Star Trek Voyager, and Sylvester McCoy. And it's going to be a play called A Joke. And the tagline is just, an Englishman, an Irishman, and a Scotsman walk into a joke. 
<laughs> so I'm presuming Sylvester McCoy's playing the Scotsman. Yeah, yeah. I, I have no idea who Richard Oliver is. Now, Picard I, is a Canadian, isn't he? I don't know. I, 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 if only I, there was some electronic database. <laughs> yeah, but I have no idea who Richard Oliver is. I, I, I assume Robert Picardo would be doing the Irish guy. Just because an American doing an English accent is always weird. But it's written by a playwright named Dan Freeman, who is also responsible for doing the the Minister of Chance mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. audio stories, which uh, has an amazing cast. Sylvester McCoy's in that, too, as Stephen well as Paul Fry. McGann. Uh, I don't know anything about it. But if you go to the website, uh, www.danfreeman.co.uk slash a joke, uh, you could contribute money to this. We could possibly have uh, what I'm presuming is a very vaudevillian sort of thing that Sylvester McCoy will be in. And if you're having a vaudevillian thing, why wouldn't you have Sylvester McCoy in it? Uh, apropos of nothing, I'll say Robert Picardo is actually from Philadelphia. Oh, so okay. I, I was wrong about that. Okay. Uh, sorry, I apologize. I, 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 I looked up I apologize, Ri- Robert. I looked up Richard Oliver on the IMDb and I got There's some... a sex offender by that name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, facing uh, a new assault charge I, in Minneapolis <laughs> as of four or five years ago. Oh, well, clearly that's the same guy. <laughs> Fun to the Kickstarter, everyone. Uh, a sex offender and Irishman and Scotsman <laughs> walk into a Writes joke. itself. <laughs> Top that, Pat. Uh, yes, I'll try. Uh, so this uh, might be old news uh, to everyone because we live in an environment now where news, especially political news, just tumbles and cascades over itself very, very quickly every day. So everybody's probably already bored of this particular revelation. Uh, But recently, WikiLeaks released uh, information about a series of CIA domestic spying operations, at least uh, some of which are probably theoretical and some of which might have been instituted. Uh, I haven't dug down deep enough to know exactly what all of these things mean. But of course, apropos to Doctor Who and revealing something I suppose we probably all assumed, which is that the CIA is full of a bunch of nerds, one of their surveillance operations goes by the name Weeping Angel. <laughs> And is, as far as I can tell, the idea of hacking into Samsung smart televisions to listen to you while the TV is presumably off. (laughs) So, first, that's awful. Yeah. (laughs) Second, that's amazing. (laughs) Because it's dangerous when you're not looking at it. (laughs) <laughs> but it doesn't even end there because the the name of the rest of their spying programs are even more amazing. And they're full of other nerdy things. I'll go over them quickly and then I'll be done. But there are things like Eggs Mayhem, <laughs> Ricky Bobby, <laughs> Fine Dining, Magical Mutt, Magic Vikings. Some of these are like, I don't really know what they refer to, but some things like Philosoraptor. <laughs> I do. Uh, Shoulder Surfer. Swamp Monkey. Dr. Boom, which is apparently a World of Warcraft thing, Roid Rage, and Fight Club. So this is your tax dollars at work, Americans. (laughs) The Celestial Intervention Agency. Dr. Boom. (laughs) And now round two, special topics, Dalek. And for this episode, I have the special topic that I'm throwing out for us to discuss, and that is this. Who is your favorite one-hit wonder from Classic Who? And by that, I mean bad guy or monster that has only appeared once. 
in classic who we know in novels and big finish they have totally mined classic who and they have brought back literally everything but who is your favorite one hit wonder and would you like this one hit wonder to return in the classic series or do you think part of their charm is their one appearance for example i guess that would depend if you thought the zygons have been at all improved by being brought back in the classic series because they were the quintessential they were one hit monster of classic who Boy, first thing that comes to my mind, and, and they get mentioned a lot, but we only ever saw them once as the Rutans, because supposedly they had the giant war with the Suntaurans that lasted tens of thousands of years or something, but we only ever saw one Rutan in the horror of Fang Rock. Given the recent prominence of Zygons and their shape-shifting abilities, it's likely that that's why we haven't seen those in the new series. Seems like they'd be a gimme with their emphasis on Suntaurans. What I love the idea of... A war between the Santarans and the Rutans. Like, we mm. could see that on a galactic scale now. Yeah. We could see Rutans and Santarans operating on different planets. And I think there's a lot of drama to be had from that. But I think Josh is right. We already have one high-profile, shape-shifting alien in the <laughs> Doctor Who-verse right now. Uh, Kelvin, of course, took mine. I was oh, going to do that. Uh, I have an alternate choice. Well, I'm going to get mine in before you <laughs> okay. uh, before you take that too, because I mean, clearly, we want the Chumblies back from <laughs> Galley. No, I'm sorry. Or the Vord. No, I'm uh, sorry. No, no, Bandrels from <laughs> Time Last. We've had the Macra. Uh, we haven't had the Yeti. I don't care about the Yeti though. But they are. They've appeared twice, three times if you count the five Doctors. Yep. It's true. They're not. I'm one thinking the ones that only appeared only once appear in the once. classic series, and the the classic series had this unique way of making certain bad guys seem so central to Doctor Who that appeared yeah. once. The Zygons were always came up in these monster lists. The Celestial Toymaker even, who had one mediocre outing yeah. <laughs> at the end of the first Doctor era, and and he was always touted as this great adversary. Part of it is is uh, I'm trying to get my uh, head to disregard a lot of the novels that I've mm-hmm. read because lots of these one-hit wonders recur at least a yep. little bit in the novels. We even talked about the... The Crotons? <laughs> the Crotons were great in alien bodies, but so was the uh, Rastin lap dancer oh, yes. <laughs> in also in Alien. But Lawrence Miles was great about yep. taking these guys back and, and using them um, for jokey purposes. But even Paul Cornell in um, No Future... He brings back the Vord. Well, and Big Finish brought yeah. back the Vord, too. I'm just going down a rabbit hole of people who haven't been brought back yet. Uh, how about the Mandragala Helix? Yeah. The Mandragala mm-hmm. Helix, I think, has a lot of potential to it because you can go anywhere in time and space, and they could do uh, – who knows what you would do? They've done a book about it, but I don't think I've read it. Uh, so another creepy cult. Did I step on your choice there, Calvin? No, actually, I had it. My alternate choice is different, but I, won't, I don't want to step on Josh's possible alternate choice. The first thing that struck me was the Draconians. That was what I was going to bring up. Yeah. Yep. They, They're in a lot of the comics. Mm-hmm. And they were in several of the novels, too. Uh, I think in Big Finishes, maybe done one or two with them. But I think the new series could delve into emotions and personalities. They seem ripe for that. They, they were a pretty understated alien race, and it, they, did, they weren't clearly bad guys or good guys. They were just another race of aliens with different political motivations than the people they were dealing with, the Earth government at the time. So it seems ripe for the new series. Absolutely. For the classic series, is one of their better makeup jobs, too. They yeah. looked really good. It was a fantastic makeup job, and, and they're again, they're another one of these races that are more neutral-ish, in a way, than outright villainous. And I always wish there were more of those in Doctor Who. They'd have to strip them a bit of their 
Orientalist trappings. They're they're yeah. they're a bit Japanese in the original conception, and now they're a little bit too Klingon. Uh, they I, they had a, a strong honor system yeah. as well, which might make it seem repetitive, even though they beat the Klingons to that. I would still like to see the Fendal. Again, hmm. I, as much as I like Image of the Fendal and it's based on those 1970s mm-hmm. Dennis Wheatley-inspired horror movies, uh, it never quite came off. It was a good concept. It was a fairly good script by Chris Boucher, mm-hmm. but uh, the entire thing itself didn't really gel. They teased bringing the Fendal back in a very good BBC book called The Taking of Planet Five. Oh, I read by that, yeah. Simon Butcher Jones, uh, which I'd like to talk about on the podcast yeah. at some point. It had a lot of Lovecraft stuff in it. Yes, illusions. it was very spooky, yeah. uh, and it was about the looming threat of that planet that the Time Lords had looped in our solar system in order to stop the Fendal infection. And I won't give away too much more than that, because I do hope we talk about it yeah. at some point. But I think it could be a very good horror episode of the new series, like something like the Satan Pit tried to be, but didn't, didn't yeah. quite come off. And in the new series, you seem to have that plot device already. If the Time Lords are removed from time, uh, what happened to their time loop? Did that release the Fendal? And, uh, and the new series is moving into darker and darker realms, and I think they would be perfect for it. Um, I, I, my, my last thing is, isn't really a villain. Naimon? <laughs> Naimon! But the land of fiction, yeah. I think, it, it seems like the kind of lighthearted type of story the new series likes to occasionally take a break and tell. And it would be fun to, to have the master return, but not the master, the master of fiction. <laughs> yeah, lighthearted and just plain weird. Mm-hmm. So so maybe would the, uh, the Kirken come back? <laughs> The carcass. 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 That's yeah. what I'm talking about. Yeah. Which has a weird name and has a weird shirt that looks like kind of like muscle. Like, yeah. Like, like muscles stripped of their skin. Yeah. It's really quite unpleasant. Yeah. You want the carcass. Yeah, the carcass would be fun. The carcass and the collector from the Sunmakers. <laughs> <laughs> this segment is terminated. <laughs> Okay, continuing on with the podcast agenda, we now come to the randomizer. And the randomizer, in its infinite random wisdom, selected The Smugglers, the penultimate first Doctor story from 1966, uh, written by Brian Hales and directed by an actual woman. What? Yeah, no, it was, it was directed by a woman. Someone smuggled her into the production. Yeah. <laughs> directed by a woman named Julia Smith, who is perhaps best known as one of the co-creators of East Enders, the long-running uh, British soap opera, which is just amazing to me. I, I love that the person who created East Enders started out with Doctor Who. I just <laughs> okay. The Smugglers is almost entirely missing. There are no complete episodes of it. And it is quite possibly the least discussed Doctor Who story out there. I mean, I don't recall ever hearing anyone say anything about the smugglers. So, uh... It's a conspiracy of silence. It's a conspiracy of silence. So, uh... Well, what did you guys think? Well, do we think that that conspiracy of silence is protecting a buried treasure? I think it had a reputation as being an exceptionally terrible Doctor Who story. Or a secret corpse. <laughs> uh, I do know that uh, apparently The Smugglers was the lowest rated Doctor Who story for many years. It wasn't until like uh, the Trial of the Time Lords season happened that they got a lower ratings. Wow. Yeah, it was like a phenomenally disliked episode. And I assume because it was a pure historical 
which were really falling out of fashion, and it was also a pure historical in which no famous people or events happen. Uh, it's just set in the, the late uh, 17th century, and that's it. <laughs> side note, it is, I think, the first pure historical we're talking about on this podcast. I don't think we've done no, any we, we, we did. We did the Reign of Terror. Yes, the Reign of Terror. I was oh, way, yeah. way back yeah. in the yeah, day. Yeah, in episode three or so. Yeah, yeah. You're right. Never mind. Yeah. Excuse um. me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it doesn't exist. No one likes it. No one's ever watched it. <laughs> There's no famous people or aliens or anything to recommend it. It having, has a lot to recommend. It. Having I said that, fun. I I quite liked it. I, I, I had a reasonably good time with it. Mm-hmm. it, it I, I liked how it wasn't trying to set the world on fire. It's just kind of this very small-scale story of, oh, no, there's pirates. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's you get know? the obvious out of the way first, right? It's Treasure Island. Mm-hmm. Or it, yeah. it, it's, it's exactly the kind of thing that we talked about. Your, thank you for reminding me, Reign of Terror. Mm-hmm. This is the kind of thing that the school children who are watching Doctor Who would be sort of familiar with, just like they would probably be at least partly familiar with A Tale of Two Cities when they're watching Reign of Terror. Yeah. They will have read the Robert Louis Stevenson book mm-hmm. when they're watching this, and they'll have Long John Silver in the back of their mind. I mean, he's, Pike even has a, well, he calls it a pike, but it's <laughs> it's a hook. It's a hook. Right. I mean, a pike is something with a big pole on it. Mm-hmm. I've it's anticipated still- your joke. It's I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean a Polish person. I mean a long stick. That's what a pike is. Yeah. He was just—he was carrying around a uh, a long, skinny game fish. <laughs> oh, is that what he was referring to? Just, you know, with the reconstruction, I couldn't tell that he was actually cutting people's throats <laughs> with a big fish. Yeah, he's, he's just had a—he just whipped out a northern. Well, thank you for clearing that up. <laughs> okay, we're done. <laughs> But no, I I, um, I reasonably liked uh, the smugglers, and uh, I just wanted to mention that the 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 ironically named cherub. He's not very angelic, is he? No, he's I, pretty ruthless. He, he is. I was thinking this is honestly one of the most bloodthirsty characters I've ever seen in Doctor Who. I mean, he yeah. can't wait to cut people's throats. He's unusually violent. And you can tell that in part because the very few clips of mm-hmm. the show that exist largely revolve around him or Pike killing people. Yeah, those are those were uh, edited by Australian television, which had amazingly strict censorship rules back in the day. There's like, it's basically people getting stabbed, and one shot, <laughs> that is stuck in my mind, one shot of Cherub peering through some bushes, which apparently was super scary. <laughs> super, or provocative, maybe? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and why, I, I, my theory for why Cherub is named Cherub is I think it was just a crack about him being bald. We'll trust you on that. Okay, I, <laughs> I don't know why you, he's you named know bald cracks. <laughs> Lord knows I've gotten a couple of them here and there. But yeah. Well, one thing I noticed right away about the smugglers and thought was kind of fun is how it mirrors toward the very end of William Hartnell's era, uh, the unearthly child in a couple ways. You've got the contemporary Earth companions. Mm-hmm who stumble into the TARDIS and are immediately swept away to an earlier time, not as far as the Cave of Skulls. Um, (laughs) But we also see in here the sort of complete character arc of the first Doctor in that that unearthly child where all he wants to do is get away from there. He doesn't care who dies. He's going to crush in a caveman's skull to William Hartnell's Doctor, insisting for very moral reasons that we must stay and help these people. It's uh, even modeled in that way microcosmically in the show itself because just like Ian and Barbara, Polly and Ben are kind of freaking out 
mm-hmm. and the doctor Hartnell is especially angry. He's really angry in that first episode. Yeah. It's, you haven't really seen him like that for a while. Because he wanted to be alone. He wanted to be alone. <laughs> loud, uh, distracting 60s people. <laughs> <laughs> in the first episode, at least, there, uh, Ben in particular is understandably but kind of annoyingly focused on getting back to the ship. Mm-hmm. We have to go back to the ship. We have mm-hmm. to get back there. But by the end, by the end of... Uh, episode three, episode four, uh, you're exactly right. The doctor has made the ethical decision to stop and help the villagers because now they're embedded in history to a degree where he can't just kind of screw off. And he also provides a moral example for the squire's redemption at the end of episode four because the squire is an amoral swine. Um, he's not a murderer. Mm-hmm. So he's capable of redemption, and by the doctor, he's just a greedy bastard. He's a greedy bastard. And the doctor's example makes him kind of stiffen up and and redeem himself by mm-hmm. the end. And that's that's a trope that is fairly common to heroic fiction, and it's something that's going to be uh, useful in Doctor Who later on. But I don't remember seeing yeah. it. This might be the first time it actually occurs. It's all very new in the show. In any case, this idea of the doctor being a hero, mm-hmm. sticking around to help people. The last thing I'll mention about that is that that exchange in episode four between Pike, the squire, and the doctor revolving around these points about sparing the villagers in Mm -hmm. exchange for the gold is actually very well written, and it has a lot of intelligent negotiation Mm -hmm. on everybody's part. So that's probably the best written scene in uh, Mm -hmm. in the adventure as far as I remember. And that's kind of where the first doctor's character has developed. He is that elderly gentleman and he he does use words not necessarily to confuse people like the later doctors will act like fools or clowns to sort of distract people but he actually directly interacts to get the job done (laughs) yeah it's an improvement over episode three i think it is where two or three in any case there's a scene on the ship where he's been captured and he's pretending to be a fortune teller (laughs) so he's uh, the the character, the the innkeeper character, he mm-hmm. does a fake fortune to, for, and then racially very questionably or whatever does the same thing for the character Jamaica, who's mm-hmm. of course the only black guy in the show, and he's bug-eyed and superstitious and nearly inarticulate, and is later. Is that the first black person in Doctor Who? No. No, there's there's got to be an earlier one, but I can't. Oh, there's one on the tenth planet. Yeah, that's the the next next episode. episode. Uh, That's a good question. We'll put a pin in that. Yeah, uh, uh, Jamaica might be the first one. Pity it wasn't a more positive portrayal. That seems to be a pirate trope they're going for, too, because they, they have the one guy who doesn't have a name. He's just called the Spaniard, too. Yeah, they're played by Derek Ware, by the way, <laughs> the stunt, the long-standing stuntman at Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then the black guy, and then the guy with the eye patch, <laughs> and the guy with the hook for a hand. All, all the pirate tropes. They really <laughs> chew the scenery with it. Still a lot of, a lot of fun to They still don't really do that, you know, that sort of American image of, like, pirates always going like, Arr! and then, you know, dancing around to concertina music for no reason. And <laughs> Is that a criticism of this episode, or did you want more you know, I, I, everyone, When there's pirates in a thing, people always have different expectations yeah. of what the pirates are doing, I suppose. But, but in all fairness about the superstition cliche, um, Ben and Polly use it on, and Tom. on another character, too. Yep. So I, I, I don't know if you can pin it all on race because it's used in so. both it's, scenes it's just there's plenty of other things to pin on race. <laughs> don't, it, don't worry. it's just part of it yes know? yeah and i like that scene a lot ben and polly with the weird witchcraft stuff it's kind of goofy but it also sets them up as companions that if they get stuck alone they're going to come up with something to do 
and they work together to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Polly kind of goes back and forth. Well, first, can I say that no one in the right mind is going to mistake her for a boy? Yeah, that, I was thinking <laughs> either either men were way more attractive in this period of history, yeah. or women were one of the other. Yeah. Or men were just way dumber. Because it's just like there's wow, yeah. that is a girl. <laughs> this is a late 18th century opera where we know that's a mezzo up yeah. there in the trousers, yeah. but everybody just pretends that they it's put a, on a domino a mask. No one knows who they are. Right. Yeah. Well, it does give Hartnell that great line of, uh, what would they say to a maiden in trousers, hmm? <laughs> <laughs> so we should say, I think, too, that this is essentially Hartnell's last episode because he's sidelined for so much of the Tenth Planet. I mm. think he's there for maybe like the first episode, episode and a half, and then he kind of you know, gets knocked on the head. I don't remember. It's been a while since I've seen it, but he's off mm-hmm. for most of that until he... Uh, uh, until he regenerates at the end. And I think this is a pretty good send-off for him. He's doing his, he's flubbing his lines, mm-hmm. and he's doing his hmm, hmm, hmm mm-hmm. thing a little bit too much, but it's it's not as bad as, as he's been, and I think... Uh, he still seems pretty vital. Like I said, it, it, yeah. when he, if he's fluffing lines and things, it's the same amount he always has. Yeah. Like you said, he gets to be a, a strong negotiator in the end. He gets to be a little silly with the um, card game and the ship. He gets to do a lot of his uh, Hartnell tricks. He gets to drink some wine. <laughs> a very fine old Madeira. Yes. yes. No, he's, uh, he's a kind of... A- after turning... It's kind of interesting. He only drinks when, when Ben and Polly aren't around. <laughs> the it's a bad example for the kids. The, 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 the innkeeper offers him brandy, and he's like, Oh, no, 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 we never touch it. No. Yeah. And then he goes on a pirate ship. Oh, I have some wine. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, the brandy would probably be less dangerous than the water they eventually took in that yeah. period. So in the end, I really wish that this one still existed. Uh, for one thing, I think the location filming looks like it would have been pretty good. The, the couple yeah. of shots that they had of, I'm sure it wasn't filmed in Cornwall. Wasn't this but, like, it's almost all location footage, which is kind of rare for this time. It, it it is. I mean, I yeah. I don't know exactly how much is and how much isn't. I assume the interiors or sets, yeah, like they usually are. But there's so much of it happening on the beach mm-hmm. that uh, looks very good in the shots, mm-hmm. and it has a nice sinister atmosphere to it. And people are just getting murdered left and right. <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> sheer rocky, scary, and the TARDIS gets lost because of high tide. <laughs> That's <laughs> wonderful. It's like, oh, it's high tide. We can't get to the TARDIS now. It would have you see the distance between that and David Tennant like chasing the TARDIS down a freeway yeah. in, in a big chase scene yeah. in the Russell T Davies era or anything that uh, that's been happening since. It's like, no, that's like, the distance that the show is covered. Yeah. Now. <laughs> oh crap! The tide came in. We're <laughs> stuck. Wait until tomorrow morning to get back there. Because clearly they don't have boats. <laughs> Near the ocean in the pirate era. Well, you wouldn't want to open the door either because the water might get in. Obviously, the temperature changes. Polly's freezing inside the TARDIS in the last scene. <laughs> That's they, really interesting. They've landed yeah. at the South Pole. It's like, what's up with that? It's so weird. It's drafty in the TARDIS. It makes no sense. It's just one of the many little things he's he's fixed over the years. Yeah. So final thoughts, I guess. Oh, weather stripping. <laughs> <laughs> Some cock. You took, yeah. a, you took a bank holiday weekend to really get those home improvement oh. projects done. <laughs> Finally, the TARDIS landed in a Home Depot. We, yeah. we gotta get this crap taken care of. <laughs>
Yes, 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 Polly. Yes, yes. We'll we'll be back when the coffee's ready. <laughs> so, Doctor, when are we going to go see something important? Hmm? Important? What, what do you mean, Ben? Well, we stopped a few smugglers in the 17th century, but when are we going to do something big? Kings and queens, big wars and all that. You know, important things. Aha! You wish to see something significant, do you? Famous, perhaps. Well, well, my dear boy, we shall certainly satisfy your curiosity. Now, if you just allow me to pellet the TARDIS. And here we are. <laughs> What do you think? It's a chair. Yes, 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 it's a chair. But not just any chair. Oh, oh, oh no. Upon that chair will sit no less an individual than Napoleon. <laughs> yes, in a mere ten years from now. Ten years? Yes, 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 I know what I said. Ah, I, I see that you are disappointed. You wish to see some famous personage in, in the flesh, will you not? Well, then let us sally forth. Here we are. Where are we? Oh, come now, my boy. Surely you recognize that fellow. Haven't the foggiest. That is no less than the American inventive genius, Thomas Edison. But he's just sitting on a fence. Indeed he is. And, and look, he is using a stick to remove some mud from his shoe. <laughs> yes, yes, very ingenious. Anyone can do that. I want to see a famous person doing what they're famous for. Oh, 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 oh. you wish to catch them in the act, as it were. Well, well, my dear boy, I, I do believe we can scratch that itch. Just allow me to enter a few more coordinates. And... and voila! I don't believe it. William Shakespeare... And he's just sitting there. Sitting there? Oh, 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 my heavens, no, dear boy. Shakespeare is writing. I think he's taking a nap. Writing? Nap. Writing? Nap. Yeah, oh, this is futile. Some people simply can't appreciate the grand tapestry of history. <laughs> well, uh, let us go back to Polly. To be or not to be, that is the question. Well, it is no blood. Oh, oh bollocks. Where did I put that wine? And for our fifth and final round, Arcs of Infinity, we're going to discuss the final Big Finish arc of John Hurt as the War Doctor. This is his final outing as the War Doctor because mm. he has recently died, unfortunately. There are three stories in this last box set. Casualties of War is the name of the box set. Pretty Lies is the first one, written by Guy Adams, directed by Nick Briggs. The Lady of Obsidian, written by Andrew Smith, also directed by Nick Briggs. And The Enigma Dimension... <laughs> Apparently written and directed by Nicholas Briggs. Maybe I should have just said that up top. But anywho, Nick Briggs, thank you very much. Um, so in addition to John Hurt, we have Jacqueline Pierce coming back as Cardinal Alistra and an old friend, Louise Jamison, coming back as Leela in the second and third of these. So what did we think? 
I think I enjoyed these more than the other. I think this is my favorite of the War Doctor mm-hmm. sets. I think it just felt like the plot kept me engaged. It had, I think, a pretty good resolution. And you know, and I don't know how much of this is just kind of me, you know, my my disappointment over John Hurt's um, passing. You know, maybe I'm I'm overinflating what the story is a little bit because, like, oh, I want him this last one to be super good. But I do think I do think it's good. Well, I'm with you too, and and maybe it's just because I've eased into this series as a whole. But part of the inescapable fact of John Hurt's death is that you, I think, imbue this last storyline with a bit of a retrospective importance. Mm-hmm. So uh, to leap ahead a little bit, and we'll we'll talk about the first two installments as well. But like this did serve to a degree as a potential swan song for the Doctor because we know that he already has his finish in Day of the Doctor. So we'll we'll talk about this a little bit more later. But uh, unintentionally, I'm sure, because I assume they probably wanted to do more War Doctor stories than this, where they ended it in the Enigma dimension did more or less work to go straight into Day of the Doctor and mm-hmm. then move on from there, except for the irresolution to Cardinal Alestra's storyline and uh and I would have liked to have seen a lot more with Leela. Yeah, I mean it does seem like a setup for more Leela and War Doctor stuff, which I would have loved to have seen. But there wasn't a cliffhanger. That was what was nice yeah, about it. Right. A lot of these box sets will lead directly into the next mm-hmm. box set they want you to buy. I think part of it was uh John Hurt's age and health, but I think also he was still a very busy actor at mm-hmm. the very end of his life. Mm-hmm. And so I think they avoided any sort of cliffhanger at the end of this because they weren't sure whether they would get him back or if one was enough for him. Because I, I, From what I, I understand, he came in, this is like two days, this entire box set of recording. This yeah. wasn't over a mm-hmm. long period of time. I, I'm impressed they got John Hurt at all for anything. <laughs> I, you know, I he's one of the big ones, you know. I just like... Well, in some of the extended interviews on the various discs with John Hurt, he, he is pretty upfront about this project being something he could do when he wasn't feeling well. Mm. After he had recovered from the initial cancer and he felt limited in what he could accomplish, this he said this seemed like it was perfect timing for him. Yeah. Um, I enjoyed this box set as much as I enjoyed any of the War Doctor box sets, which really comes down to John Hurt and Jacqueline Pierce together. Mm-hmm. It suffers from, I think, two curses of Day of the Doctor, is the fact that you know how it ends, but also the limited scope that I feel Day of the Doctor put on the Time War. Doesn't mean that these box sets couldn't have opened it up and done more than just space battles. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But there was just a lot of really well-designed space battle sounds (laughs) and atmospheric explosions. But a lot of the war stories in it are surprisingly mundane for something called the Time War. And that's just a general criticism of the box sets as a whole. I think my favorite stories from all the box sets are these kind of side trips they take. My favorite's probably the first story here. Mm-hmm. in this set uh, where you get this weird idea of uh, reporters who are actually embedded in time <laughs> during this war, you mm-hmm. know, and it has a little bit of lightheartedness, but also it actually supplies some interesting stuff about the war doctor's character. I had a little sort of aha moment 
um, when he has the line, I'm not a magician, I'm not a god, I'll do what I can, but miracles are simply beyond me, which is the, the exact opposite of how he's portrayed in much of the new series. <laughs> he is a god, he can do anything, and we sort of see the war doctor here, won the battle but not the war, and this idea that that's what slowly wore down the war doctor, that it was just battle after battle where he could stop the Daleks from attacking, but there were still all these terrible consequences for the planet. Instead of painting it as these horrible war crimes he did, because every time we mm-hmm. listen to one of these boxes, he doesn't do anything that... that he doesn't any have, other doctor yeah, wouldn't that, do. that, He doesn't have these tough moral yeah. decisions. Well, that, I, I don't know how fun that would have been to listen to. <laughs> like, hey, the doctor murders the planet. Yay! <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a tension, I think, between a number of different um, ways of telling stories. In, when you talk about the War Doctor, there's the traditional heroic narrative that Doctor Who is about. Mm-hmm. And then you have the war story narrative, which is a well-worn trope as well. And so you have um, things about heroic sacrifice and uh, even in Pretty Lies, journalists misrepresenting or prettifying the truth. Mm-hmm. You've got those two things going on. But then you have the real reality of war and how it operates, too, rubbing against both of those. And none of these things are very at ease with one another, especially in a Doctor Who milieu. So I won't say that it doesn't work, but the tension is always there. It's like you can't be, you can't make the doctor a, a genocidal maniac. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you can't have him dropping an atomic bomb on mm-hmm. Hiroshima or something mm-hmm. like that, which is sort of what's implied by Day of the Doctor. Like these are the terrible things that he's had to do. But that raises any number of questions like, well, are there Dalek civilians? How do mm-hmm. we think of Daleks if they are civilians and they're not? But you see what I mean? It just kind of explodes outward because of the nature of the fiction. So here I think they, they, they more or less ride all of these things through on the character of John Hurt. Mm-hmm. Like he's able to kind of skip over a lot of these contradictions and just kind of push forward while in all of these War Doctor audios, maintaining a sort of distance from the central moral questions of what the time war is all about. They're usually the same Doctor Who-ish kind of questions of, I'm going to sacrifice myself for the greater good, and it's usually other people doing it on the behalf of the Doctor, which is always a pain. I, I hate seeing that. But it navigates it as much as Doctor Who possibly can without being really horrible. They don't have a lot of surprises for me. No. And, and as we've mentioned quite a lot about um, audio is that it has to have some narrative surprise for it to be elevated to something greater than the sort of cliche or tropes that we're used to. But because we're Doctor Who fans and because John Hurt didn't get much screen time, John Hurt, like you said, just taking all these um, Doctor Who storylines and filtering them through the character of the war doctor. And I want to segue to one particular moment in the last story by Nick Briggs. They're pulled out of time, and it looks like the Daleks have won. The war is over, and he has that um, moment where he says to um, Alistra, like, we have nothing to lose. We've lost. The Daleks have defeated us, replaced us. Don't you want to find out how they did it? And he has this (laughs) moment where suddenly he's, like, almost excited that they lost the war, because that means he can go back to being this curious kind of twinkle-in-your-eye doctor, even in the face of, like... (laughs) Annihilation, And I think it's a clever moment with Nick Briggs, but it's, it's down to John Hurt's performance. You see this doctor that could have been in just, like, one or two lines. I wonder how much of this is, like, Leela coming back, but it was interesting for me how the climax of the Enigma dimension rather clearly evokes Genesis of the Daleks. I could get rid of all of them, but no, I'm not going to do that. And Alistair's like, are you out of your 
I, I, I'm just trying to think of a good Time Lord metaphor for out of your mind. But yeah, out of your mind. <laughs> out you know, of the Matrix. Out of your Matrix. <laughs> uh, but and then and then he has the uh, the sort of all or nothing gambit that he pulls, and kind of what what comes out of that is Gallifrey is saved for now, but it's still more stalemate. And he was prepared to, as I understand it, to destroy the the Daleks and the Time Lords together, mm-hmm. both of them at the end of the mm-hmm. Enigma Dimension, which is what I was referring to earlier mm-hmm. as the lead into Day of the Doctor, where yeah. he's like, Well, I'm I'm gonna go find the moment and I'm gonna I'm gonna end this war mm-hmm. once and for all, yeah. no matter how many of the combatants or which side are are destroyed. All of these War Doctor things are kind of uh, stories of bits and pieces because they're they're fragments of the the Time War and it's fragments of kind of Doctor Who we stuff that's um, that we've seen before and uh, that are done in new contexts. But some of what I've liked about this arc is Jacqueline Pierce as Alestra. Mm-hmm. Up to let's say the Lady of Obsidian, there seems to have been a noticeable softening of her character, like as yeah. she hangs out more and more with John Hurt, she becomes more aligned with his point of view. Uh, and this is just the kind of usual thing that happens with um, you know, long-term storytelling, like Spike on Buffy or it, everybody in Twin Peaks or whatever. Like The villains just become, uh, you like them too much, and so the writers want to soften them and make them more um, more in line with the heroes. Although, having said that, Nicholas Briggs sort of hardens her a bit more in the final serial where she's much more she's much more hardcore and much more like she was in the earlier yeah. sets. So that was that's a function, I think, of the writers writing her in slightly different different ways and becoming more affectionate toward her, mm-hmm. uh, but also maybe a sign to where her character might have gone. Had this story continued, I don't imagine they're going to do much more with Alistra after John Hurt's dead. I could be wrong. We're going to see her in an earlier phase in the Eighth Doctor prequel. Oh, you mentioned set. that, yep. yeah. And she will be in that. But I want to talk briefly about Leela yes. and her return. I think Louise Jameson is great. Her performance almost brought a tear to my eye when she was suffering the effects and of yeah. the uh, time damage and talking about the children she did have, didn't have, the children who did die, didn't die. And it's so small of an audio performance, which is really hard that still evokes so much. So. Mm-hmm. She did so many great things in this. That being said, I'm a little disappointed. Mm-hmm. I don't know why you would bring back Leela and have her in one story in amnesia, yeah. and then the next one possessed by an alien being. Yeah. It's like you robbed us of like most of what we really wanted to see. And there's some great parallels I, that they could I, have I, explored I, so much more. I think they were hoping for like one more. I agree. Stories, and we were going to get full on Leela and like the next planned story, whatever that was. I had exactly that note, practically word for yeah. word, for what you just said. Full on Leela and the War Doctor would have been an amazing partnership. Yeah, ultimately, I'm, I'm fine with seeing her introduced as Lady Obsidian and, and mm-hmm. having had too many memories. That's a great idea mm-hmm. of this sort of mm-hmm. reverse Alzheimer's. Where yeah. it's like I remember every possible <laughs> thing. It's a great idea. It's also a great way to care about a casualty of the time war yeah. instead of just being throwaway people on different alien planets um, and her and her performance is fantastic it is the huge misstep is then not just giving us the doctor and Leela full yeah. on in the final episode yeah it's it's funny what gets a person sentimental right because River song can come back and hang out with Paul McGann and I'm like yeah okay cool whatever yeah. but John Hurt says it's Leela mm-hmm. and I feel like Bursting out in tears, yeah. like that's <laughs> what what my feeling was, yeah. and it just took too long in that episode. Okay, her 
her circumstance, as you say, was very interesting, but it took to the end of Lady of Obsidian to have even a little mini reunion at the end with the doctor. Oh, I remember you and such and such. Mm-hmm. And even then, Alistra cuts it off. Yeah. Yes, 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 let's get going, which is kind of funny in a anti-sentimental yeah. kind of way, but it didn't uh, it didn't lead into a full-on Dr. Leela reunion because mm-hmm. then, of course, the Enigma people took over her brain. And, yeah. yeah. She's got a couple funny Leela lines in the last one and in little moments, but boy, it would have been great to see them just end up together on a planet, the War Doctor and Leela fighting old school. <laughs> and, and at this Counselor Troy, I sense a great sadness yeah. stuff. Like, what is with the savage mind nonsense? That was a little strange. It's a bit kind of colonialist because, and patronizing, yeah. isn't it? I mean, it's from how the fourth Doctor treated her from yeah. the original series. Mid-1970s. Yeah. A little uh, more evolved. Okay, that's not the right term either. For <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I that seemed odd out of the war doctor too and that yeah. she has lived on Gallifrey she's fought in a time war mm-hmm. um, she clearly is very sophisticated, sophisticated as you yeah. are yeah so that rang a little weird I agree with you she's like 400 years old at this point <laughs> yeah. none of these war doctor things to wrap it up um, I didn't love them in the same way that I love a lot of the Doctor Who stuff. But I love that they exist. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, especially now that John Hurt is gone, I'm glad that we had the opportunity to see at least a little bit mm-hmm. of what he can do with the character, even if it was only two days mm-hmm. of recording um, and fitting in these little small, tiny stories before mm-hmm. Day of the Doctor. But I don't know what uh, what your guys' opinions are. Yeah, uh, it's fantastic to hear John Hurt be the Doctor, and he is so completely the Doctor. He can... Yeah. creates a complete character uh, he, he did on the TV show and he just continues it in these audios he does not phone this in you believe 100% that this is his his yeah. era of Doctor Who and he got to play the part in yeah, the I, that's I, the best thing about it I, I really enjoyed it is it like the pinnacle of the new series era I, I can't really say that Obviously, the nerd in me goes, oh, why didn't they get Rob Shearman to come do a, <laughs> a, a Time War, War Doctor story? Alan Moore. Uh, or, or Mark Platt, even. Yeah. Alan, Moore Mark famous, Platt. Alan Moore famously hates Doctor Who, though. He did. He uh, famously hates a lot. He famously hates a lot of stuff, but yeah. He wrote for Doctor Who magazine back in the day. Yeah, he did a few briefly short comic things. You know. He did stuff about a Time War. Mm-hmm. Which where I think a lot of this grows out of. But that's a story for another day. <laughs> so, but before we go, I want to ask our listeners uh, to please contact us and let us know what you think about these deep dives into the box sets. We've uh, done the War Doctor. We're doing the Doom Coalition stuff now. We we spoil the heck out of them. We give away all the good parts, the stuff that we think are the good parts anywhere. Uh, anyway, uh, does it matter to you? Um, should we stick with stuff that more people are likely to know? Some of the new series stuff, um, some of the classic episodes that more people have seen. Uh, these are relatively obscure. Well, I don't know if they're obscure, but uh, you know they're not for casual fans, these box sets. and I don't, I don't know. Do they work for people? Do they not? I'm not sure. I enjoy doing them. Me too. Yes, I, I, but I, I don't know. Do people like hearing them? Well, let's find out. Please. <laughs> yeah, let us know. Email us. Post on Facebook. Uh, write a review on iTunes. All that kind of jazz. Let us know uh, what you would like to see us cover, and whether uh, these uh, audio things are, are to your taste. 
Well, that's our podcast. Thank you, everybody, so much for listening. Tune in in two weeks' time when we will have episode 45, because that comes after 44. Um, We will be talking about the power of the Daleks. We're very excited about that. And in the death zone, we've got a little bit of an odd matchup for you. It is the 12th Doctor story, Time Heist, and the big finish story, the Veiled Leopard. The Veiled Leopard. How could you not remember The Veiled Leopard, Josh? <sighs> but seriously, Veiled tune in. Leopard. The Veiled Leopard. Anyway. It's got a veil. <laughs> if you en- it's a big cat, and there's a thing over its face. <laughs> if you enjoyed the podcast, or if you think these guys should stop picking on me, <laughs> please write a review on iTunes or give us an email or Facebook comment. Uh, until next time, I'm Joshua. I'm Pat. And I'm Kelvin. And we're saying... Get off my world! Should I say that it's episode 44? We've never done that before. Uh, yeah, we sure can. Let people know. This is a body of work, people. It's evolving. (laughs) It's a long-form narrative. It's like those many, many iterations of Leaves of Grass. (laughs) Just like that. Anywho, Mrs. Walt Whitman coming to you <laughs> from 1867. You're listening to Leaves of Rock. <laughs> Episode 3 <laughs> with William Hartman. <laughs> Leaves of the Daleks. <laughs>